when you have an adventurer's pack for your adventurer's pack. When ancient artifacts are unearthed. When you must master both body and mind. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 38th entry into our Chronicle, recorded on Saturday, August 25th, and released Wednesday, August 29th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventurous Packs, Adventurous Packs. Yep. Next, we check out some D&D news as we bring you coverage of WizKids' newest set of D&D minis, more ways you can get the Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron, and the Wizards of the Coast PAX West schedule. After that, we take a short rest and open our adventurer's journals, this time looking at the monk class, before finally looking into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's packs. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for. Some people use miniatures, maps, or even cosplay, but sometimes having visuals at the table can make all the difference. And it doesn't always have to be something big and fancy. Sometimes even little things bring just that much more flavor to your game. And some of my favorite visual game elements are simple paper crafts. And one of the most fun and useful paper crafts that I found are the equipment packs found over at rnw.net. I find that, at least at my tables, players frequently forget about all the stuff they have in their equipment packs and also how useful all that stuff is. And I really feel like these paper craft equipment packs help with that. These are hand-drawn 3D physical representations of the various equipment packs found in the player's handbook, along with all their contents as item cards. Each one of the item cards displays all the data for an item found in a given pack, including weight and price, along with an area to track the quantity of each one too. And each equipment pack by itself is sold pretty cheaply. It's 99p, or that would be 0.99 pounds for our American listeners, because this is a UK site. Or you can get the full range of packs for £7.99. These are all print and play, and the download includes empty fillable item cards as a PDF, and a custom font to edit them so you can make your own. I got the full set for my players for our Tomb of Annihilation campaign, and I did find myself a little disappointed to discover that the Monster Hunter pack was not included. I mean, it's not on the website at all, so it wasn't in the full set. I did have to repurpose an Explorer's pack set, and I made a few item cards using that fillable PDF. And from that experience, I did find that the fillable item cards can be a little difficult to work with, like when filling in an item description, the template keeps the entered description in the middle of the card, and it also keeps it all on one line even as the font automatically changes size, and that gives a lot of potential for some really teeny font if you type too much. It's also kind of a pain to add images to the fillable cards if you don't have a PDF editor, 
but they were still really easy to make, the extra cards that weren't included. And aside from that, I really think these are great, fun little products that will add quite a bit of flavor to your tables. Yeah, so I was, um, I, I really like the artwork on these. It's Yeah, they're hand-drawn. Yeah, it's, it's all hand-drawn, but it's kind of got um, a style. It reminds me very much of a Dyson Logos, uh, who's... Uh, surprise surprise a cartographer that i quite like <laughs> um he's the um you guys have probably seen his maps they've got sort of like uh they're black and white and they've got sort of like crazy cross hatching all around the outside of them yeah um, you discussed them on a previous episode yeah yeah and this very much reminds me of that it's kind of like thick line art which is really nice and i also like that although each pack uh, obviously you kind of like make a little box out of paper and then fill it with item cards each one of them seems to have a unique shape to it as well so like the burglar's pack um, looks like an upright backpack but the scholar's pack is almost like a portrait one and the diplomat's chest actually looks a little bit like a, a treasure box yeah the artwork also uh, I know on a couple of occasions we've uh, talked about ways to get children more involved in D&D. When I first saw the artwork, the immediate thought that entered my head is that these would be very good coloring projects. Like the packs in particular, if they're flat before you put them together, it would be very easy to give them out as like coloring projects because the line art is spaced very widely apart, so it'd be easy to like color with crayons or colored pencils or something like that. Yeah, uh, I actually made up all these sets for my players for our game today. So they each had their own equipment pack when they came to the table today. And one of the first things that was said was, hey, that's cool. I love that it's all in black and white so I can color it myself. And like, these are grown up players. These aren't kids. So even if you want to personalize it yourself, it's not just just for kids. Adults can color too. <laughs> and also, I agree with your um, your original assertion that very often when somebody gets a like Dungeoneer's pack or a Burglar's pack as part of their starting equipment, they forget what's in it. Um, and more importantly, what a lot of the things that are in the packs actually do. Like, for example, the... the uh, I always want to say pythons, but I know that's not right. I say pittons. Pittons? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever those things are that actually help with climbing, those come as part of the Dungeoneer's pack for one. And uh, if the characters come up against a rock wall or a cliff face, and are like, well, let's start free climbing, you know, somebody can actually... Or it might be easier for somebody to remember, hey, I have things that can help with that and it doesn't even have to be a special skill check if they're proficient with the kit yeah lots of people seem to remember that they have 50 foot of hemp and rope but very few people seem to remember the rest of the things that come in the pack particularly like you said pittons are one of the main ones that we come up against as well so is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables found a cool app book or other item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters let us know about it by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. 
This week in D&D News, with just three weeks until the release of Waterdeep Dragon Heist, there's not a whole lot of news flowing out from Wizards of the Coast, though we have been keeping an eye out, and this week we really have to hand it to WizKids for their latest line of minis. They announced this week a new set of their pre-painted minis, covering a lot of the missing creatures that we're going to be fighting in the second Waterdeep adventure, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. They also announced a premium miniature set that features other items such as furniture and some generic magic items. Among the list, though, were two items that caught our attention in particular, the Hand and Eye of Vecna. Anyone who's been playing D&D for a while will be more than familiar with these two artifacts that will be appearing in Hallister's lab itself. And whilst both the items are already listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide on page 224, this appears to be the first time in the 5e modules that we'll be coming across them directly. Yeah, these are pretty powerful artifacts that um, uh, once belonged to Vecna himself. And uh, for those of you that don't know, if you want to actually be able to equip these, you literally have to remove one of your eyes and have the hand grafted onto your hand in order to actually wield them but they do provide a lot of additional bonuses um and a lot of abilities but they are artifact levels so these are things that are virtually impossible to destroy and convey one heck of a lot of power to their i was gonna say wearer but that doesn't quite seem like the right sort of sense when you've literally got to have these body parts inserted on you don't these also require a wisdom save, I believe it is, to not get possessed by them whenever you use them. I think I seem to remember that. Yeah, over the editions, they've gone through various different incarnations. And yeah, this uh, particular one in uh, fifth edition, you do have to. Um, it, it's every time you like cast a spell using the Eye of Vecna. Um, and uh, or if you cast spells using the hand then um yeah you have to succeed on a um i think it is a wisdom saving throw yeah um otherwise you basically end up becoming a thrall and being taken over by it and then you become an npc so there's always that benefit <laughs> yeah at least back in fourth edition they weren't it, it was a literal devil's bargain because in 4th edition, artifacts like this had personalities and goals, and all of them eventually had a um, like a move-on point, and when they moved on, it affected the character in some way. Right. So, like, you never got rid of one of these without something happening to you, usually. In, with the nicer artifacts, it didn't really matter. It was whatever the effects were were mild. Um, but with the Vecna ones, if they moved on, your character died instantly. Wow. Like, no regeneration, no recovery. That's harsh. Your character dies. Vecna himself gains all of the knowledge and personality of whoever you just had, and then it moves on. So Vecna just had all these different personalities already inserted into him? Well, more like it knew the personality of the person that had used it. Okay. Not necessarily like that was now one of multiple personalities. I was about to say that could be an interesting bad guy. It was one of those like if someone actually is interested in using one of these, they're either 
completely ignorant of what they do or they are a very suspicious person. Yeah, and I mean, Vecna is one of these bad guys that kind of comes up time and time and time again in Dungeons and Dragons in general. And I think it's quite cool that we're going to be finding these in Under Mountains, particularly in the, by the sound of it, the lab of Halaster himself. Um, but it does make me wonder if they're putting this kind of stuff into Undermountain, like what other treasures and like god-level artifacts are we likely to find in there? Well, it could be these are the only ones. Like the the whole point of Mad Mage is find these. Uh, because we don't actually know, unlike Waterdeep, where the plot and everything have been discussed in a lot of detail by a number of different people, we know very little about what the storyline around Dungeon of the Mad Mages, assuming that there is one and it isn't just like a setting guide. Perhaps these contributed to that madness. Possibly. So, you know, um, just a, an interesting little side fact as well, not really related to the Hand and Eye itself, but um, are you guys aware of what Vancean magic is? I am not. No. Okay, so uh, Vancean magic. Effectively, it's the, it's the magic system that... Dungeons and Dragons mainly uses it's the whole wizards have to memorize spells and uh, if you go back to the sort of the pre fourth edition games uh, where they would save up a, a spell and hold on to it for as long as they can and then they would just fire it off but then they couldn't do that until they finished a, a long rest again so you know it's it's the whole sort of like fire and forget type mm -hmm. stuff. That type of magic was uh, popularized by a guy, an author called Jack Vance, and uh, he wrote a lot of uh, fantasy fiction, um, which Gary Gygax actually liked, and that's why he kind of stole the magic system for Dungeons and Dragons. But Vecna is actually an anagram of Vance, if you ah. switch all the letters around. Oh, interesting. Well, it's been just over a month since Wizards of the Coast announced and indeed released The Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron. Debuting on the DMs Guild and D&D Beyond, priced at $20, this living document come playtest brings the mechanics of 5th edition into the world of Eberron, and features not only updated mechanics for the races and dragon marks, but also a comprehensive guide to Sharn, the City of Towers. Well, almost a month to the day, The Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron is now available for players and dungeon masters who use the Fantasy Grounds virtual tabletop. Again, priced at $20, the Fantasy Grounds copy has been converted from the DMs Guild PDF, and much like its source, will continue to be updated as Wizards of the Coast issue new mechanics based on playtest feedback. However, Fantasy Grounds do say that there will be a slight delay whilst the content is converted. And for those of you that use Roll20, we haven't had any word yet that I'm aware of that the Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron is on its way over, though given their relationship with Wizards of the Coast, I can't see that that wouldn't be too far off. How closely, I, I haven't been following in a lot of detail, how closely associated is Fantasy Grounds with Wizards? So before Roll20 got licensed, Fantasy Grounds was basically the only way to get uh, official 5th edition content on Virtual Tabletop. Okay. So they've kind of got that little edge there, but then Roll20, as soon as they got licensed, just ramped up their production like crazy and, and caught them up pretty quickly. But it's likely that Fantasy Grounds will still be getting the stuff first, and then Roll20 will follow on after? Yeah, yeah, that's a possibility. 
PAX West is nearly upon us. In fact, by the time this show airs, it will be just two days away, running from August 31st to September 3rd, and Wizards of the Coast have released their schedule for the event. There's the usual lineup of tabletop gaming, live play, panels, and merchandise, and this year's adventure for the Adventurers League is entitled Vormistrand's Scroll. When Faerun's legendary brewer goes in search of ingredients to create the finest beer Faerun has ever tasted and mysteriously disappears, it's up to our brave adventurers to pick up the trail. Along the way, they'll cross paths with Vormstrand's rival, Xythus. What role did he have in the disappearance of the Master of the Golden Ale? That's up to you to uncover. Safeguard the sacred recipe, finish Vormstrand's work, and keep Xythos from getting that certain special ingredient. This year, three or possibly four live play events are on offer, depending on how you're counting. On Thursday, August 30th at 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the D20 Dames and the Dungeons & Drag Queens crews are playing a double bill through two original adventures. Both shows are interconnected, and if you're attending in person, a discount is available if you view both parts of the double feature. Speaking of the Dungeons & Drag Queens crew, they're the hosts for the next live play game that's happening on Saturday the 1st at 9.30pm Pacific Daylight Time as the Queens of Adventure play through another original adventure in front of a live audience. And the third, or fourth, depending again on how you're counting, adventure capping off the PAX Live Plays is, as always, the Acquisitions Incorporated live game on Sunday the 2nd at 6.30pm. Join Jerry Holkins, Mike Krulik, Holly Conrad, and Patrick Rothfuss, better known as Omendran, Jim Darkmagic, Strix, and Viari, for a continuation of their previous adventures. Well, not all at the same time. Mostly. The Acquisitions Incorporated game, as always, will be streamed on Twitch, so if you're not able to see it in person, just head over to twitch.tv forward slash dnd. So I'm really looking forward to the Acquisitions Incorporated game. I really do like watching it uh, every single year that they're out. It's sort of one of the highlights of the pack shows for me. I do find it somewhat amusing that one of the adventures is entirely centered around beer, but I suppose that <laughs> is... that's uh, It's low-hanging fruit, but it's probably not overused yet. It's probably fermented fruit as well. Uh, yeah. And it sounds like it's mainly a for fun silly adventures so it's not going to be overly serious I mean not that any of these usually are anyway but that can also help bring in new new players I think when the adventures are short and silly like that yeah I mean these are the ones that are taking place on the tabletops throughout the PAX um, yeah. expo show yeah either one of those And when I was reading through the adventure synopsis, it does sound quite fun. And I think it would actually be the sort of thing that I might want to pick up to try and run as a one shot at the table. Just like when a couple of players can't make it, you've just got this like silly adventure almost that you could drop it in anywhere. I feel like my group has an abundance of those already, but I would not mind adding this to the list. Yeah. So what about uh, what about you guys? Do you tend to watch the Acquisitions Incorporated live games or am I the only one on the cast with any sort of taste? Wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to not watch much live games at all anyway. Yeah, I'm with Ryu. As I've I've discussed, I have... Old man shouting at the TV type qualities. (laughs) Yeah, that that sort of thing. Which apparently my players will back you up on. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I always... I, I sort of more like hearing about them after the fact and then 
like the dissections and analysis uh, to see if anybody like if anybody did something particularly cool I might go back and watch the the segment that they're talking about but um, I don't often watch the whole thing through yeah in the same way well you guys are missing out because last year they had a French talking lizard that only spoke in words that ended with Sean <laughs> I'm not even making that up I don't imagine you were um, did any of the panels they listed seem to be you know possible areas of new spoilers or something like that or did they seem pretty run-of-the-mill nothing that i could see in there would seem to have any spoilers maybe so just to give a bit of a, a brief overview of the panels you've got one that is on collaborative storytelling in uh, tabletops and video games etc and this is hosted by uh, cryptic studios who make the mmo neverwinter so there's a possibility that because they're going to be launching a Waterdeep module that there may be a couple of spoilers in there, but I'm honestly not too sure. Other than that, the other uh, panels that are going on are how to play to the virtual crowd, so how to stream your tabletop games. Um, there's a Waffle Crew um, Ask Me Anything panel. Um, there's a Beamdog panel, Beamdog being the creators of Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights, etc., um, there's also going to be an Acquisitions Incorporated C-Team panel, uh, a how-to-start-running tabletop RPGs, and a similar session but focused around players entitled Am I Playing a Role? So none of them really sound like they would have any spoilers in. Maybe, like I said, the Neverwinter one from Cryptic might have a couple. Well, now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and open our adventurer's journals to learn all about the monk. What the hell did you just cast? Flaming Hand of Fiery Doom. A fourth level spell on a zero level peasant. Yeah. I really don't think they're worth it. Well, I don't think they exist just because somebody was bored, though. What are you two arguing about? Monks. I don't get them. And to be honest, I don't really know any. Oh, monks are great. Well, of course you'd say that. As soon as you look at how to become one, you have a bunch of weird calculations to do. Well, okay, you're not wrong. For most of the classes in D&D, people have a vague idea of what their purpose is just based on popular fantasy tropes. Druids make plants and animals do weird things, wizards blow things up, warlocks hurt things and are creepy, fighters hit things, barbarians hit things but angrier, and so on. But when you get to monks, most people give a vague answer along the lines of, don't they do martial arts and jump around and stuff, and they're weird? Monks are something of a cult class in D&D. The people who like playing monks really like playing monks. And the ones who don't, or haven't, often have a hard time getting into them because it's difficult to point to their purpose the way you can with a fighter, wizard, or cleric. Few people recommend them to new players because their mechanics are a little complex, the same thing that keeps most power gamers away from the class. So what is it that makes monks so odd? Well, it's a combination of things. First, they have a bunch of abilities centered around being unarmed and unarmored. They get a bonus to unarmed strikes right away, and they get extra AC from not wearing armor, similar to the Barbarian. Then, beginning at second level, they get extra movement speed and their infamous key points. This is where the power gamers give up most of the time. 
The unarmed bonus only turns the unarmed damage from 1 to 1d4, which is better but not amazing from a math standpoint. Also, the AC is based on dexterity and wisdom, but wisdom may or may not get used for other combat abilities, so maxing out that stat only helps your AC. And while you may have a higher than average AC, you're only getting a d8 for your hit die, so your health total is not going to be anything to write home about compared to a paladin or a fighter. All of those things immediately start a debate about what a monk should be doing in context of the group, particularly at the lower levels. Do they try to use their higher AC to absorb attacks, knowing that they won't be outputting a ton of damage, and if anything actually hits them they will almost immediately need healing? Or should they be using their extra movement and key abilities to dip in and out of close combat? The frustrating thing for most people is that any of those roles can be done better by other classes at the early levels. Any of the more solid so-called tanky classes can form a better defensive line, and rogues and rangers are much better at diving in and out of active combat, and, at least on paper, they do more damage on average than the monk. So why play them? Why does everyone hate warlocks when these monks seem frustrating and useless? Well, let me paint you a picture of a monk at level 10. They have an extra 20 feet of movement, so even a dwarf is going 55 feet a turn. Their AC, without any armor, is between 18 and 20, and if someone hits them with a ranged attack, they can reduce or even eliminate the damage. Most of the time when they're attacking, they get four attacks that do d6 magical damage each, and they can completely avoid damage from area effects and falling. Like their real-life counterparts, monk characters require patience for there to be any payoff. Monks never really get a massively showy single ability, like a rogue sneak attack damage or a champion fighter's wider critical range. They get little abilities here and there that, on their own, don't do very much. But when you combine them with everything else the monk gets, it turns into a very useful package. The only exception to the showy abilities is when the monk chooses a monastic tradition. The monk's utility becomes a lot more obvious as their initial tradition choice guides a lot of how they will be using the monk. Drunken masters, for example, are great at weaving in and out of combat and can even make enemies hit each other. Kinsei monks gain even more defense and can increase their weapon damage. Sun Soul monks can do all of their regular attacks from 30 feet away without a weapon or magic. Speaking of magic, elemental monks just straight up use their key points to cast spells. Like Ryu said, one of the challenges with the monk is the patience required and the awareness of how abilities do or will synergize with each other. This is usually why new players shy away from them and describing their specific role in the party is quite tough. Also, none of the official monk builds at the moment focus on non-combat roles, so those interested in being more of a diplomat or even a support character won't really gain that much from playing it. There was a way of tranquility path that focused on healing and diplomacy, but so far that's only been released through Unearthed Arcana. The monk doesn't necessarily get you anything from multiclassing either. Where some classes can grab a d12 hit die from a level in Barbarian or sneak attack damage from a level in Rogue, the monk's slow ramp-up means there aren't immediate benefits to taking a level. The level 1 abilities are Unarmored Defense, which you have to strip off your armor to take advantage of, and Martial Arts, which only works if you're unarmed. An argument can be made for a spellcaster that needs to bolster their defense and ability to hit back if something closes, but they'd be sacrificing spell slots in order to grab that. So in short, the monk is tricky. Both you and your group of players have to have patience if you play one. 
at early levels, you're going to be on the squishier side and definitely need a stronger buddy with you or someone to heal away your pain if you jump into the front line. However, if you stick with it, you're going to end up being a formidable combatant that's going to be able to get out of most situations and do damage besides. I don't know. I still prefer my knives. Well, then don't be surprised if you'd run into a guy in robes and he hits you from across a room before outrunning you completely. Uh, speaking of running, I've just noticed the timer. We should get over to the scrying pool to see what our listeners have to say. What news from the door? Dryness of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last week, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, which of the Ravnica races, if any, are you looking to try out? What's been your experience with D&D board games? Fun diversions full of cards or a poor imitation of the real thing? And do you have mostly digital record keeping at your tables, or are some people still keeping the paper tradition alive? Carcer the Cavemaster wrote in to us on Discord and said, In terms of Ravnica races, I'm not entirely convinced. There are already so many races, classes, and subclasses that a relatively new player or DM could quite easily get confused. Plus the fact that for some reason I cannot get behind part animal races such as the Aarakocra. Hey, Dungeons & Dragons board games could be a lot of fun, especially when you're trying to teach younger players about the law and creatures behind D&D, and to be fair, it could be quite a bit of fun. Lastly, at my table, everything is on paper. I try to keep technology away as I'm trying to keep the tradition alive. Shiv's House of Puncakes on Discord says, While I fully realize you can chop down a tree for paper and plant new trees, I prefer digital because I don't lose my phone. But my desk is a cluster of paper, and I lose paper, and I don't want to keep track of paper, so I use Beyond. Most at the table have Beyond, but a couple of the old guys use paper and tell me I should. Meanwhile, they are digging around for info, and I have two taps and I can find all the things on my Beyond sheet. And Turkey Guy, also on Discord, says, I have and played the Tyrants of the Underdark board game, and it's one of my favourite board games. So I prefer paper when I'm casually reading, and I've often used paper for playing, but when running online or when I have my computer to hand, I do prefer the ease of D&D Beyond and my beck and call. And I'm currently using digital character sheets in my Horde of the Dragon Queen campaign. Natural wrote in on Discord saying all digital at my real world table, Roll20 map on the TV, players with D&D Beyond on their iPad or iPhones, and my laptop referencing Roll20 in OneNote to DM the campaign. My primary weekly game though is on Roll20 and we pair that up with D&D Beyond as well. Shadow also on Discord says, Almost all of the D&D board games I have played have been of excellent quality. The theming is sometimes very surface level, like Lords of Waterdeep, but the games themselves are solid. Even the dungeon crawlers are good, as they are better balanced than the D&D combat rules and are good for scratching that tactical itch. For groups that like board games and like D&D settings, most are a great addition to any table. If your group just isn't into board games, especially Euros, then I doubt the setting will make any difference. And Marty's Meatwagon, also on Discord, says, I've encouraged my players to use digital record keeping, but I think that just as they enjoy the tactile aspect of physical dice, they like the feel of pencils and paper. And I get that. We're all a bunch of nerds who appreciate that our game is part of a tradition of low-tech fun. All of my players have access to my D&D Beyond resources, and some of them are coming around to creating and maintaining their character sheets there because it's so easy and convenient, and the redesigned D&D character sheet display is simply so much better, but most of them are still inclined to then print it off, and I appreciate that. It's still usually quicker to scan sheets of paper spread on a table than it is to click and swipe around a tablet. 
tradition. And Gath Memvar on Discord said, We use a mixture of paper and digital. Depending on the campaign, I'll have a DM screen with paper notes or a laptop with notes. The players bring either a printed out character sheet or use the 5th edition character sheet app that we talked about in Adventures Pack a while back. We like the mixture as digital helps them with the tedium while pen and paper allows that kinesthetic old school feeling that keeps the players disengaged from Reddit, Slack, etc. during the session. Yeah, so that's a good point, actually. I know that a lot of people do like to keep technology away from the table so that players don't wander and get bored, but I'm almost of the opinion that if you're doing a good job as a DM, then your players shouldn't be getting bored and wandering off to Reddit, etc. Yeah, in that vein, without disagreeing, I find in many cases it's very difficult to keep all of the players engaged, and if you know that you can drag them back letting them sort of go off on their own if you're doing a part of the campaign that they might not be particularly invested in helps because I feel like, for example, if I know I've got a couple of people at the table who are really into like hardcore role-playing negotiation with like one character, whereas a couple of others aren't so much, I don't feel as hesitant to insert that sort of thing into the campaign because I know the other players won't be sitting around terminally bored. They'll just entertain themselves with their phones while the couple of players that really want to get into that aspect are able to entertain that. As long as I can bring those other players back into the fold afterward without too much of a, like, hassle. I have noticed that at my own tables, when we use something like Roll20, and I have almost never, almost never used Roll20 in a non-face-to-face situation. So I like I typically use it when we're going through a really large dungeon and I don't have the space to draw out the map. I have a harder time keeping the characters engaged because they've got their computer screens up in front of them. And I don't have one TV set up to take the roll 20 map if you know what i mean yeah i probably should get that set up but i just haven't had the time to do that yet i do find that when we have sessions like that it's a lot harder for me to keep the players engaged when it's not their turn i have not noticed a problem with phones when we're not using laptops for roll 20 so at least at my own tables that particular part hasn't been a problem looping back to carcer's feedback At the beginning, I had to chuckle a little bit when he said there are so many classes, races, and subclasses that somebody could get confused. Not because I think he's wrong, but just because it's very obvious this person was not involved in (laughs) 3.5. Because the number of races, classes, and subclasses we have right now pales in comparison to the sheer insanity that existed back in 3.5. How do you know though? Because, you know, Casa could have gone through years of therapy to forget <laughs> about 3.5. That's And you that's could have just true. opened a whole load of psychological wounds there. Well, he Are shouldn't really have bard? brought it up then. It should have been part of the repression. Yeah, I'm not saying his therapy was any good. <laughs> I'm just saying he could have had it. 
And in general feedback, Carcer the Cavemaster on Discord responded to our episode 36 community question, saying, So I would like to say that the idea of a PHB2 is a great idea if they amalgamate all the information, classes, and subclasses from Xanathar's Guide to Everything and Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes and all the other books and put it into one reference book. And then I would hope they would do the same with the Dungeon Master's Guide. That would be a very pricey book, I feel. It would be a very large book, too. Yeah, and, well, I mean, not if they stripped it down to the basics. Like, if it was literally just sort of a reference index with all of the classes and subclasses without the associated lore and flowery descriptions, they could probably trim it down so it isn't ridiculously large. But unfortunately, while I think it's a good idea... I don't see it happening purely because from a marketing standpoint, there'd be no benefit to them doing that because they could argue, yeah. first of all, you can get all that if you hop on D&D Beyond and buy the subscription and buy all the digital copies, then you essentially have that available in digital format. And in terms of physical media, I don't see why they would make a quick, easy reference when it's better for them to have you buy all the individual books. That, of course, is a rather cutthroat and cynical look at it, but unfortunately that often tends to be the way marketing decisions are made. Yeah, I also feel that if they start slimming it down and making it, um, taking out all the lore and the fluff, you're getting dangerously close to 4th edition there, and one of the things that a lot of people didn't like about 4th edition, other than the fact that it seemed to borrow from MMOs, etc., was that it was definitely more game than it was fantasy role-playing game. Though I will say that um, Xanathar's Guide to Everything would benefit from having an index itself. Oh, yes. Yeah. But that's a tangent for the first episode. Yeah, that really is. Wow. (laughs) It's like throwback Friday, Saturday. What day is it even? I don't know anymore. (laughs) And that brings us to this week's community questions. If you're at PAX West, let us know about it. What was new? How were the live shows? And did you find out any juicy secrets? Are you a big fan of the monk class? Or are you one of the people that's always shied away from it? And what other artifacts are you hoping that we will uncover in Undermountain? Details on how you can get in touch with us coming up next. And so that brings us to the end of the 38th entry into our chronicle. Heroes Rise will be back with our 39th entry next week on September 5th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D, and you can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you, so take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Also, make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com, or by searching for us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the sound of what we do, we're always looking for new adventurers to join the party, and all of the ways that you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. So all that remains is for us to thank the people who make this show possible. Our head scribe Baxter, our social media mage Ray Ray, our web wizard Gath Memvar, and of course our audio alchemists Mikey, Branwyn, and Timasthenes. 
Special thanks go to Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. over my words today let's check up some dnd news you know like i don't do it normally (laughs) never ever never no there is no evidence of you ever tripping over words at all no wait never mind i'm getting totally confused that's gonna get cut don't worry that's not going in there (laughs) i'm gonna say something else instead that's gonna make me sound really intelligent um bet your dollar (laughs) all right then yeah (laughs) fine and they can (sighs) <sighs> I'm getting mixed up from all of the um, acronym, or not acronyms, I guess it is an acronym, and the uh, just capitalized words next oh. to each other. <laughs> What's an N-O-T? That <laughs> no. uh, says not Ryu. It's a <laughs> negative word. The unarmed bonuses only turns... That's bad English. I'll say that again, and I'll actually read what was written. It's always better when you do that. It is. Well, it unless is. you've written it and it's very, very British. I, I, was, I was literally just about to say, unless I wrote it, and then I tend to ignore it and ad lib it anyway, so there we go. Once that happens, the monk's utility becomes a lot more obvious as their initial tradition choice. As their initial tra- yeah. Okay. Once that happens, the monk's utility becomes a lot more obvious as their initial tradition choice guides a lot up. Uh. <laughs> Hand of Vecna, eye of Vecna. Mouth of pillows. (laughs) We like the mixture as digital helps them with the tedium well (laughs) penned. Sorry, can you say that again? Just don't overemphasize the we. And that's not a phrase I use often. (laughs) Cut all of that out, please.